my kids all know that I have a dream vehicle. And uh, on our way home from camp meetings one year, we pulled in this gas station, and there's my dream vehicle. It's a charcoal gray Corvette Stingray with black pinstripes. Now, I've always wanted a convertible. This one was not, or was it a convertible? I think it was even a convertible. I can't, I can't remember all the details. And I've always wanted a Corvette. It shows probably my age. I don't know. But when we were home then, we got to talking about this desired vehicle. My boys were like, why do you want one? I'm like, why do I want one? They look good. And they're like, well, wouldn't you? And they were... They would want one for the power and the motor. I'm like, they were like, come on, mom. You're at a stop sign and there's somebody next to you. You're not going to rev your motor and take off as soon as the light turns green. Uh, no, I have no need to. You're not going to want to show somebody the power that's in the motor. Uh, no, I have no desire. The vehicle for me is just because I like the way it looks. I really wouldn't want it. They were flabberg. They didn't, I don't even know if they really believed me. They wanted it to show power. They were going to want the, the power on the motor was what they wanted the vehicle for. They wanted, well, not really a car, but in a pickup, they wanted to be able to go mudding, see how much dirt they could get on it, see how much they can pull, whatever. Power, and most of all, revving it out just to show the person sitting next to them in the, on the road that this, their vehicle has power. If you can't get it, I'm not worried about it too much, but then I get my notes on there. Um, I got a picture on here, and if we ever get it up, it's not a Corvette. It's actually a Dodge Viper. What are we doing? If we can't get it, don't worry about it. Uh, I'm not going to worry about it. A Dodge Viper has an uh, 8.4 liter 10V, 10, or V10, sorry. That's how much I know about cars. I got my letter and my number mixed up. 640 horsepower. Now, there's some power in that motor, isn't there? <laughs> but I want to talk about another kind of power that we have that sometimes we might not use. It might waste it as much as I would be wasting an 8.4-liter 8. engine just for to go to Walmart. Um, and don't worry about it, guys. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, that way I can read my notes better on here. I'm good. Uh, just fine. I will um, disconnect this. That way I don't have to worry about my notes. I really wanted to show you a picture of this car. It was a beautiful Dodge Viper. Uh, not a Corvette, but, hey, I wouldn't mind the Viper. Just because it looks nice. Who cares about the power? Don't really care about the power. Anyway, so we are talking about power. We're following this theme of carrying the kingdom and that we have power, authority, um, picking up on our... I don't need that anymore either. You know, Genesis tells us that we were created to rule, that mankind was created to rule. That God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Both of them together, male and female, at the beginning were meant to rule together. Now, Adam's sin didn't just introduce sin and death into the world. It also introduced, it tra- introduced hierarchy, but it transferred authority from mankind to Satan. And we see several clues later on in Scripture. The first one we see Noah builds a boat. Everything's flooded. God makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 when Noah's getting off the ark. But the words, and he, in that covenant, the words he uses are slightly different, but similar to the ones he says to Adam. To Adam, he says, to rule, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then he proceeds to tell them what they can eat. But now when Noah gets off the ark, it's slightly different. He says, be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth. And then he goes on and tells them they can have more, they can have meat. 
There's no bit about subduing. There's nothing about ruling over anything. Because that had already been transferred. We see it again when Jesus comes, is in the wilderness being tempted. He has three temptations. And in the third temptation, the enemy comes to him and says to him, he shows him all the kingdoms, takes him up on a high mountain, shows him all the kings in the world and says, all this I'll give you if you'll bow down and worship me. That temptation would have had no power if Satan couldn't make good on that. Satan had dominion. He had authority. The kingdoms were in his hand. Therefore, he had, he could transfer that, give that to Jesus if Jesus would bow down to him. There are prophecies in Daniel 7. There's also prophecy in Revelation 11 that talks about the Son of Man coming and having dominion forever, that the nations of this world would be, have become his, the kingdom of, of his world, his. It had become part of his kingdom. So Jesus' temptation here was to circumvent the path ordained for him to regain the authority. Satan could have given it to him, but Satan could only give it to him because Satan had it, because man lost it in the garden. Then after the resurrection, we see Jesus telling his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now go make disciples. So we see authority has been restored to Jesus after the resurrection, and then he gives it to his disciples for them to go and transform the world. So we... Power, dominion, rule, authority. All these words we're supposed to have that, that God designed mankind to have. He created us to have because we're made in his image. There's a difference between power and authority now. So I want you to think of traffic. A lot of traffic on the road. This intersection, it's busy. There's tractor trailers, there's pickups, there's cars, there's Dodge Vipers. Haha. But there's all these vehicles. And this five-foot petite female cop walks out into the center of the intersection and holds up her hand. How much power does that woman have? She doesn't really have a whole lot of power. She really can't stop any of those cars, but she has authority because of the power that's backing her up. And it's because of the authority that she carries that all the power around her stops. So there's a difference. Power, authority is delegated power. And I want to talk to us about our delegated authority, the power that we have. And we're going to... passage is going to be in Ephesians 1. Have you ever had someone tell you something or you get into the middle of a conversation and somebody is talking and they are so excited, you're like, you are exaggerating that. It, it can't be like that. Come on, just calm down. Say it. Stop using all those. At, don't, it's not that great. It can't be that great. Don't exaggerate. Stop exaggerating. That's what we find here in Ephesians when Paul is writing to them of what they have in Christ. He starts off, before I get to that though, I'm sorry, I got ahead of my notes. Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians and he is so excited to talk to them of the power they have. Now the people in Ephesus, they know power. They are a center of religious power, economic power, and political power. While they were not necessarily the government seat of Asia Minor, they were a major center of imperial influence. A lot of, all caravans coming from all over Asia would come to Ephesus to then go to the rest of of the Roman Empire. They they were the third largest city in population, a quarter of a million people behind only Rome and Alexandria. A quarter of a million people is their population. When Paul first arrived, there's only about a dozen believers. So he's talking to this small fledgling church in the midst of this 
the center of power. But it wasn't just economic and political power. It was a hotbed for religious power. It was a, a hotbed. There was a lot of occultism. There was a lot of magical arts going on there. It was also the center of worship for the, Diana. Ephesus was founded by a tribe of warrior women known as the Amazons. They were powerful women who were warriors. Mythology, yes, but I mean, that's, that's, their legend is this is what Ephesus is based on, was founded by these powerful women. The, uh, it was a center of religious power because the temple of Diana or Artemis, depending on which one you go by, had, she had a temple there. When you're pulling in, Ephesus is situated, if you can picture, I can't lift this arm, Italy and then Greece fetching down, there's the Aegean Sea, across the Aegean Sea, Ephesus is here. When ships would sail into this harbor, there was a little harbor created by the Caister River. When ships would sail into the harbor of Ephesus, the first thing their eyes would see was this looming temple of, of Diana or Artemis. It was huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425 by 225 feet with 127 pillars were 60 feet high. This, was, it, this imposing temple was visible far out to sea. So we have all this religious power going on in here, economic power, and we have political power. And this is, this is the congregation, this small congregation that Paul wants to remind them, I know you see power all around you, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Because the power that you have available is far greater He starts off first reminding them of the blessings they have in Christ. They are blameless. They they are promised a blameless and holy life. Destiny, they've been adopted as children. They have redemption and forgiveness. That they now can know the plan of God to unite all things in heaven and earth. They have the freedom to live for God's glory. And they have the promised Holy Spirit as a down payment for for an inheritance. So he reminds them of the blessings that they have. And then he's praying for them. And in this prayer... He uses words in quick succession and superlatives. A superlative is an adjective that describes even more, that gives it more, more, more weight. And we're going to talk about those words. I, that's why I want to use PowerPoint so you could see them rather than just um, hear them. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. And I'm reading from the NIV. Verse 17 of Ephesians 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance as holy holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is evoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We read that lots of times without thinking too much because we're so familiar about it. Start off, there are two words of no here. His prayer is that they will know him. That no is an epignosis. It is a word that means experience, that you have firsthand knowledge because you have had contact with that. You have experienced it personally. It's not hearsay. It's not just something you know in your head. You've experienced it and you know it. And nobody can persuade you otherwise. This is the prayer that he has, that he, they, will, they will receive greater knowledge of, of God, that, that experiential knowledge. 
But then he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would know. Now, this know is an ido, E-I-D-O. It means to perceive. It means to comprehend. It's, it's like a seeing that becomes a knowing. Kind of like when we say, well, I see what you're saying. Or I, I see what you mean. So it's a bridge between the physical sight with spiritual or mental sight. So he's wanting them to have this knowledge of God they experience, but through that, that the eyes of their heart are being opened, opened so they could perceive. Not what is, and he's not praying that he, these things he gives them. He's praying that they will understand that they already have them, that they can apprehend them, that they can comprehend them. And what are they? The first is the hope to which he's called us. This isn't just necessarily a hope of life after death, though it includes that. This is a hope, the reason he created us, this hope that we are to, not, not necessarily heaven, but heaven here on earth, a uniting of all things, a new creation, a renewal of the creation of heaven and earth, heaven down to earth, his will on earth, just as is heaven. That's our hope. Not just that it happens, but that we are a part of it. This is the hope to which we are called. He also prays that they might know the glories of their inheritance. Now, this inheritance... It's all that's his, which is grand enough, but it's also the inheritance of the promised land. The Old Testament talks about the promised land as their inheritance. Now we have the new covenant world as our inheritance. And the Holy Spirit, he says earlier, is a down payment for that inheritance. This new covenant world, if you want to read what it's like, is described in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and 22. Now it's what we have now. It's what he wants us to know that we have this inheritance now and it's available to us now. This inheritance, all that is his, everything, but also this new covenant world that we get to be a part of. And then he uses these, these whole bunch of words, all, all piled on top. If, and they're all different words, but they all mean the same thing. They all mean power. He wants us to know this immeasurably greatness, the, the immeasurable greatness of his power. That word immeasurable is hyperbolo. It's where we get the word hyperbole. So a hyperbole is an exaggeration. It means a huge amount. You can't say it. It's just a whole lot. Immeasurable. Greatness. That word is megathos. We understand what mega means. Mega means really big. A lot. Great. Okay. Power. We're, we're familiar with this word power, this dunamis. So what he's saying is he's using a hyperbole. This immeasurable. You can't be measured. It's beyond what you can understand. This greatness, putting these two words together, of his power. Oh, and you can see he's starting to exaggerate it. But if that exaggerates isn't enough, he starts to describe it. And how does he describe it? By using four other words that are words that also mean power, according to the working of his great might or his mighty strength. Working is energy, God's power at work in and through us. The uh, other word, strength, is iscus. Iscus is a force that overcomes immediate resistance. Or power. Might is kratos, dominion, or exerted power. So we have all these words all piled on top of each other for Paul to communicate to this little, small, little church in the midst of all this huge power around them that you've got a power that they know nothing of. So he's already said it's power, he's described it, and then he describes it in another way. Again, as if, as if all those descriptions were enough, he gives them a metaphor or what kind of power it is. It's the same power that raised Jesus. Now, in our Bibles, we have chapters and verses that weren't in the original. And so we split the end of chapter 1 with the beginning of chapter 2. 
And chapter 2 is the one that starts, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins has erased. But in the original, there's no verb there. The verb is in this verse 20, where he raised, so he's, what Paul is saying is, he raised Christ, and then goes on to describe Christ, and he raised you, and described you. you. So he's, it's this, this power is the same power that raised Christ, and raised you. Which really makes sense, if he's the head and we're the body, you don't raise one part of the body without the other part. So we are raised with him, but it's that power that raised Christ from the dead. But not only raised him from the dead, which is fantastic enough, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Now, we all know this just doesn't mean God's here and Jesus at his right hand. This right hand is a symbol of authority. The right hand is a symbol of where he was seated in a place of authority, sharing authority. It also, when you extend a right hand, there's a relationship when someone, right hand is that idea of authority and power in their culture, and to a certain extent, in our culture, we're losing it less. So he's seated at his right hand. Now, picture yourself in Ephesus. There's 12, maybe by now there's 20, because by the time he wrote Ephesus, the church was, Ephesians, the church was larger. And all this power, and he's just talked about this power, described it in so many terms, said it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and then seated him far above all dominion, all power, all rule, and all authority. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. For the, um, we think of this age as now and the age to come as heaven. But in the, their, um, in the, when, when the original readers, listeners of this letter, the people of the first century, they, they believed there were two ages. The age of the Mosaic Covenant and the age of the kingdom, which is the new covenant world. So, so he is seated far above all power, dominion, rule, and authority in this Mosaic age, but also in the new covenant age that's about ready to to become. It's, it's, we're in this transition period. It's coming. It's going to be fully. But now you and I, we're not looking forward to that age. We're in it. So he's seated far above all power, all dominion, all rule, and all authority. And he gave him, he put, I'm getting ahead of myself, he put all things under his feet. This phrase, he put all things under his feet, Paul is pulling on the Messianic Psalm. It's 110, Psalm 110. Um, it's a Messianic Psalm. It is the most often most oft quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament passage. And it's, it's a messianic. And the, it opens with, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Paul is hearkening them, reminding them of that. Okay, th- that's been fulfilled. It's happened. He's made him now. That's done. He's already put him. He's put all things under his feet. And he gave him as a head over all things to the church. We have, I should have looked at that. I'm not going to worry about it now because I wish I would have looked at that head to see if it was, which, which head it was. Now, so, and then it says that we're his, the church is his body. So if everything is under his feet and we are his body, where is everything in relation to us? It's under our feet as well. It's under us because we're his body. We're his, he's the head, we're the body, and everything's under his feet. So, everything, so everything's under our feet. And he says it again, combining that. So he's described Jesus, raised Christ, and then he also raised us um, from the dead, made us alive, and seated us in heavenly places. So this is where we're seated. There's a word here. Sometimes we miss little tiny words. Um, but it, it's the NIV says, 
talks about this power for us who believe. Other translations use the word toward us who believe. That word is a small little Greek word, ice, E-I-S. And it's, it's a word that involves movement into, um, like a penetration for the benefit of the person, for a purpose. So it's like, it's, it's not just um, this, this power that's available for us, that he's, he's got this power and he's looking toward us, giving us his power. It's a power that has moved into us. It penetrates us for his purpose, for our good and for our, for our advantage. Interestingly, there are, um, before Christ's resurrection, there's one thing that prophets spoke to as the epitome, the greatest example of God's power, and that was the exodus from Egypt. So whenever they wanted to talk about the greatness of God's power, remind them that God could be trusted and they could look to him for divine deliverance, they would refer to the power that God exerted there in Egypt when he, all the plagues, and then bringing them out of Egypt. But now Paul is giving us another example, an even greater example available for us, and that's the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ and us in Christ. Um, the astounding power demonstrated in coming out of Egypt is like, in a sense, but not as great as the astounding power that delivers us out of bondage to sin. So the first power was one that was a physical deliverance from a temporary bondage, but this second power exerted is a forever deliverance from spiritual bondage to sin and death. The first power wrought um, like a national liberty for the nation of Israel, but this second power brought us a spiritual delivery for all man from there on, from that, for all of humanity. The first power offered Israel an earthly inheritance in the promised land, and it offered them natural wealth there on. But the second one gives us uh, a spiritual inheritance of all that is his, the promised land, this new covenant world that is available to us um, every day of our lives. Now, this is, we know this is a, we talk about this power when we talk about raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, calming storms, but... It's just as much power to love your neighbor, to love your enemies, to forgive those who hurt you, to give when you have nothing to give. It's just as much power. It takes just as much power to strengthen us to face our fears, to strengthen us to persevere when we feel like quitting. So in in talking about power, I don't want us to limit it to those grand, impossible things that we think of. Every day, every day you need this power at work in you, and it's there if we can... Remember it and, and, and comprehend it and access it. But I realize that it's easy to have a pep talk here Sunday morning and think, yes, I got this power, good, and we go home and suddenly we're trying to remember what was said and what we thought because we're hit with something and we're discouraged. I'm saying this, this whole message, at a time that this is how high my shoulder can get. And when I extend it out... I can't twist my hand around if my arm was extended. So I don't, I don't have a whole lot. So, so when I talk about this power to heal, it, I, know, I know I have authority to heal. I know I have power to I, I still haven't seen it. And it's those moments that we wonder, really? Is this really true? I want to encourage us to not allow our pain and our disappointment to shape our theology. If that, if that woman, cop, pulls over somebody... And they drive off. Does she just hand in her badge saying, oh, I thought I had authority. I thought, forget it. I don't have any authority. If, if the person she pulls over doesn't listen to her, doesn't obey her, she calls back up. 
She doesn't just assume that the badge didn't mean anything. That every, She knows she has authority because she knows authority has been invested in her by the state in which she lives, the state in which she's been commissioned. As they don't use commission, they use another word, authorized to operate. So this, there's times that we, we're disappointed because we hear about this power and we don't see it in our own lives. Like I'm still, my arm's still like this. Interesting thing about this arm that I've realized that relates also to power. This arm is incapable. This does not hurt, but it's incapable of going any higher. Now, if I lift it, I can, okay? Now, it does often hurt, but there are things that this arm cannot do to the point that I thought, I would, if I didn't have a right arm that could do it, I would think it's impossible, and I've said that to my PT and I've thought about I'm doing these exercises. I don't know that my arm can go in that position. Then I put this arm in that position. I realize it can. And when we haven't accessed that power, sometimes we feel like there's things that are impossible that aren't really impossible. It's just that we haven't really exercised it all that much. And we exercise it best in the everyday things. Not to, we're, not to, we're not to shy away from raising the dead and healing the sick. But we don't want to keep it limited to that. I would rather be able to love those who hate me, to bless those who curse me, and to do good to those who are harming me and live my life with that kind of power than to not do that and raise the dead and heal the sick. But we don't have, it's not an either or, it's a both and. So if you're in a place where you're like, yeah, all this talk about power and authority, yeah, let's just apply it to, it's just not working. It's there. It just needs to keep exercising it. Just because, just because the person doesn't obey the cop doesn't mean the cop hands in the badge. And just because the forces of nature and my arm doesn't yield right away to my commands doesn't mean I don't have the authority that God is vesting me with. He said it. And if you do a, if you do a study of all the verb tenses, they're all past tense. It's a done deal. This authority that we have has already been given to us because of what Jesus did on the cross. This renewing of, some people will say, well, what if it's not God's will for you to be healed? It is God's will for me to be healed because this is a sign of decay. This is a sign of creation dying. And his will is the renewal of all creation. His will is the uniting of heaven and earth. So anything that is not of heaven is not of his will. It just might take more time. I might need backup. I'm going to have to constantly keep on your cop doesn't always pull somebody over and everything is done in about five minutes. Sometimes there's an ordeal they got to go through to finally get that person to submit to it, to him or her. So it's easy for me to forget. It's easy for us to forget the power that's available to us. And when we forget it and we don't access it, then we end up not being able to do things that we should be able to do or things feel impossible that aren't really impossible. There are some people that healing the sick doesn't seem impossible. Sometimes it feels very impossible to me. Raising the dead feels very impossible to me, but Smith Wigglesworth, but didn't he raise a hundred some people from the dead? I, and I heard every told a testimony of this guy that's, if I remember the story correctly, the guy was rotting when he was raised from the dead. I've never seen it. And it feels really impossible to me. But it's, it's this reminder that this is what the power that's available to us, this, and this power backs the authority that we've been given. It's not because of anything we are, it's because of who he is. It's because the power that he has, he's delegated to us to give us authority here on earth. 
And we are restored now. The first Adam lost dominion and authority. The second Adam restored it to mankind. So now that we are restored to a place of authority and dominion and rule. Just as God planned from the beginning. Um, and it's not, it's not necessarily a future thing. It's going to become, become more and more perfected in us and in this world. And I believe as we exert our authority more and more and more, I think the enemy's voice is going to get more and more shrill. And the pockets of evil are going to get smaller and smaller, but they're going to be really dark in those small pockets. But I'm one of those Pollyannas that believes the world is actually getting better. I think it would be a defeat of the victory of the cross to say that he died and the world's just going to get worse. But he's vested us with authority. And if we're, if we're really honest, and if I'm honest with myself, if my world is getting worse, he's given me the authority to change it. The buck stops with me. But now, this, this rule, when we think rule and dominion and authority, especially as Anabaptists, we think crusades. No, we don't want to do, we can't repeat the crusades. That's not the kind of authority. It's authority that we view through the cross. It's authority that Jesus demonstrated when, you know, he knew the power that he had from God, that all things were under his feet. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he's going. So Jesus, because he knew his authority and he knew he was, what did he do? He took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and he washed his disciples' feet. That's the kind of power and rule and dominion that the world needs to see. That's the kind of power. It's not a lording it over. It's not a taking a hierarchy. It's not a bossing people around. It's a serving people. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's exercised in and on the cross, not the sword or the gavel. It's exercised as we, as people, give ourselves, our lives in love, transforming the world around us. Not, it's not a political or social power, although, I mean, I, people can get involved in politics. I'm not, it's not necessarily antithetical to that. But this is the authority that Jesus demonstrates for us that we want to model. And it doesn't look all that powerful. So we have a paradigm shift going on inside of our minds. We hear all about this power. And then we say, but it looks like washing feet. And to be perfectly honest with you, I have a lot of trouble thinking of that, envisioning that kind of power transforming the world. Because I'm accustomed to worldly power. I'm accustomed to the big guy has to win. Somebody needs to have guns. And I'm not making this about that, but somebody's got to have some muscle. Somebody's got to take charge. But that's not the kind of power that Jesus is even talking about. So I'll be honest, there are times that, well, lots of times, I'm like, I don't know how that's going to work. And it takes faith for me to understand that this power to love our enemies is actually the power that's going to transform the world, not the power that exerted in the Crusades or the power power that people want to, um, for lack of a better example, um, well, this is really old, moral majority or the religious right. I'm not, I'm not faulting those, but we have a tendency to put our trust in man-made power rather than heavenly power. And it takes faith to trust in God's kind of power. We don't, and we don't always feel powerful. Alexander the Great was probably one of the most powerful rulers in the ancient world anyway. The, yeah, um, or maybe the entire world. He conquered the world by the time he's in his early 30s. Well, the known world. Um, but when he died, he didn't leave any successors. And his four generals fought over his empire, and they ended up dividing it. So you had Greece, you had the Syrian, and you had Egypt. And so you had these... But the, the area of Syria that was Greece was ruled by Antiochus. Ptolemies ruled Egypt. Antiochus IV 
decided he was going to conquer the world. He thought so high of himself, he gave himself the name Epiphanes, which is God manifest. So he thought of himself as God. He's conquering his world again, probably going to do the, try to do exactly what Alexander the Great did. He comes down to Egypt and he conquers all of Egypt, except he can't get Alexandria to fall. To fall. He can't take Alexandria. And he surrounds Alexandria with his huge army, but they won't surrender. So he puts this siege, and the Ptolemy sends a message to Rome, appealing to Rome for help. This is in the, like, the late BC, like 100, right around the second century BC, towards the beginning of the, I get my end, it's toward the beginning of the second century BC. Um, that this, is, that this is occurring. So Rome is still, in its, it's not become an empire yet. He appeals to Rome, and Rome pulls out, they call up an ret- old retired general named Gaius Popilius. I don't know how to pronounce it. We'll just say Pop. Gaius Pop. And he's, just, he's an old guy. He was a general. They pull him up, and they send him to Alexandria with about three ships and a couple attendants. He gets there, Gaius gets there to the shores, and he, as he gets off the ship, he's so old and arthritic, and arthritic and weak that he breaks a stick off to help him walk across the sand. So he has, he's carrying this demand from Rome to give to Antiochus to leave. So he's leaning on this stick, and he's walking across, and he meets um, Antiochus, and Antiochus extends a hand, but he doesn't even accept the hand, it, kind of in an in a, in a confident way, he hands them the paper. In the paper, instead, that's to tell him to leave. And then he takes his stick and draws a circle around Antiochus. And he says, don't step out of that circle until you've given me your word whether you're going to obey the letter in your hand. So we have here, we have this huge army by a guy who's conquering the world, a young king who's quite capable of destroying everything in his path. And we have this old arthritic general who can't even walk without a stick. This is where we get the, word, the phrase, draw a line in the sand. This is the history of this drawing a line in the sand. So what happens? Antiochus agrees to leave. And he packs up his army and leaves Egypt. There was nothing that that general really, that general had no power, but it was the power behind him. It was the authority that he carried that caused Antiochus to sit up and take notice. It was the power behind Gaius that Antiochus was obeying. And we are ambassadors of a greater kingdom. We might feel frail. We might feel weak. We might feel old, elderly, arthritic. We might, we often feel weak. I do anyway. I don't know. You, and this is just as much for me because I'm in the middle of a depression where I feel like just lay down and just go to sleep and don't wake up. There's no point. But we feel that way at times. But we have this delegated authority similar to what Gaius had that we can draw a line in the sand to the enemy and say, you're going to bow. Not because of anything in me. Not because I'm anything special. Well, I am because I'm his kid. But because of authority that has a power behind that's greater than any power that you've ever known. It's, greater, it's, it's above every, every rule, authority, power, and dominion the world has ever known. And it calls on a name that's above every other name. You know, when we use, when we say things in Jesus' name, it's not just tacking that on the end of the prayer. It's, it's calling on the authority. It's, we're using his name because he's saying, you can use my name. In the, in the um, New Testament times, sometimes they would give, that was, the, that was the, um, the significance of the father giving the prodigal son the ring. He was restoring him to a place of sonship and authority. So now he had that ring. So he could speak, he could sign things, he could seal things in his father's name. There's an authority that comes with a name. 
So we carry his name. Now, do we, do we carry this power, this authority, because it looks good? Is it, is it, I mean, am I going to use this power just to go to Walmart rather than rev up my engines at a stop sign? I will never do that. If I ever get, if I ever, ever, which I won't, if I would ever have a Dodge Viper or a Corvette Stingray, it would, if, and you see it, and somebody's revving it, it's one of my boys behind the steering wheel, not me or my husband. <laughs> but we have this power, and sometimes we need to, we're going to need to rev our engines a little bit. We're going to need to show the enemy what for. But now remember who our enemy is. It's not people. Our enemy is the accuser. Of is, our enemy is the one that's stolen the identity of the people that you think might be your enemies. That person who's hurting you, that's slandering you, the enemy has stolen that person's identity to even give them an idea to slander you. So it's the enemy, and you have a power of him. Draw a line in the sand. Don't go after You serve the person through whom he's working, but yet you, you use authority against the enemy. You love and serve. So our purpose in utilizing this authority and power is after the pattern of the kingdom. And it's to fulfill God's plan in the uniting of heaven and earth. Of not just of manifesting the kingdom and advancing the kingdom. As each one of us manifests. Advancing the kingdom might be too big of a job for you. To me, I'm the type of person, I don't want to just have someone tell me, just make, if I'm, in a, if I'm a pep rally for a basketball game, I don't want to just say, just do your best hitting your shots. I want to know we're going to win this game. And I, w- I want a pep rise going to say we're going to win. But some people would rather say, just do your best. Just know who you are. Just know you can make those shots. I want to know we're all going to do that. We're all going to win the game. So depending on our personality, sometimes it can intimidate some people to think of advancing the kingdom. To me, it excites me. So just manifest the kingdom. And you manifest the kingdom by being Jesus, for using your authority, using your power by loving your neighbors, loving your enemies, and healing the sick by forgiving those who wounded you and raising the dead. And that's how you're manifesting the kingdom. But as each of us manifests the kingdom, the kingdom's going to advance. There's only one team that can make it on the backs of one person, and that's Cleveland, the Cavs. Everybody else, we need everybody else. LeBron might be able to carry a team, but most of us can't carry an entire team. But even he couldn't win. So we have this power, and what are we going to do with it? Are we going to see what's available to us? Are we going to see what we can do with this power? Or are we going to bury it? And, and, I don't, um, and, and again, I'm going to remind us again, I'm not talking about us all leaving here and going to the hospital and healing all the sick, although that would be a fantastic thing. I'm talking about going home and loving your husband or your wife when they're <clears throat> yelling at you. I'm talking about doing the dishes when you don't feel like it. I'm talking about serving someone you don't want to serve. I'm talking about forgiving someone who hurt you a, couple, a year or so ago and you can't quite let go. Talk about that just as much. In my opinion, sometimes that takes more power. Everybody thinks you're great when you raise the dead. But what happened? They want to know all about it. What did you do? What did you say? But when you forgive someone, it's a power that most people don't see. They they might still see the fruits of it, though. It's time we did some mudding. It's time we saw the depth of the muck that we can drive through. It's time we used the power under a hood, far bigger than an 8.4 V10 engine more than 640 horsepower to see what we can do. When we are fully conscious of the divine power behind us and of the authority that God has delegated to us, we can face the enemy without hesitation, without fear. And we can do damage to the the empires of this world. I want to, 
if the prayer team can come up, I'm just going to pray a prayer. And if, if something in here rings a bell to you, or if you're feeling particularly weak and you need to be strengthened, or you're forgetting about this, or maybe you just need prayer for healing, or you just need, need encouragement, I would pray, I encourage you to come up. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead now. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll pray then when we're done. You're done. Good morning, everybody. I'm Rusty Deslenda. Um, we're taking, I think, Brian's place for ministry, and that's fine. Um, he had some company come in. Um, I really love this message. That, um, I prayed I can get through this. Um, um, power and authority, it's, it's just so wonderful to... Um, be able to have that power and authority that God has given us and that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and that's our fuel for the viper, I guess, what Tammy was talking about. Um, basically, uh, Matthew 10.1 and Luke 10.19, I read that very uh, very often. Um, it's just amazing um, the power and authority that we have because I think sometimes the devil tells us that we don't. And and I and I know you guys probably have had that happen to you too, but we do. Um, I want to tell you a quick story, real quick about um, about my arm. Um, some of you might already know. And I don't want to take up a whole lot of time, but um, I had a seven millimeter tear in my um, shoulder, and it was. Um, I got an MRI done, and it was a half inch deep, and I went for three weeks. And then I finally went to the doctor, and that's another whole story about the doctor, But um, and we need doctors. But um, what happened was, um, I, I don't even know how I heard it, but it was a um, rotator cuff tear. And the doctor said, oh, it'll cost $10,000 to have it fixed. Well, I didn't really want to spend $10,000 to have it fixed when I knew. Because $10,000 was our deductible. <laughs> <laughs> that my daddy could fix it. So I went on, I guess it was I guess it was about three weeks and um I slept every night trying to get comfortable if you ever had that happen to you. You can't get comfortable, you can't lay on your back, on your stomach, on your side, anyway. There's nothing that's comfortable. I mean it really, really hurt. And a guy up here from Delaware knew that I had I had a bad shoulder. And he had told uh, Joel Hitchcock, I don't know if you guys know him, he's from up here in Delaware, and we were in Florida, and he called Linda um, one day, and he had prayed for me over the phone that my shoulder would be healed. And 2 o'clock that afternoon, my shoulder didn't hurt like whatsoever. I couldn't, I'm like Tammy, I could barely lift it very high, and I mean, there's no way I could do that. And um, and all of a sudden, I was like, just at work working, and I came home. It was like, I got home at 3 o'clock, and I said, you're not going to believe this. And she said, what? I said, my shoulder don't hurt anymore. She said, I know. <laughs> and um, she said, Joel Hitchcock called and prayed for your shoulder that it would be healed. And ever since then, it has been healed, and it hasn't hurt me or gave me any trouble whatsoever. So... What I'm trying to tell you guys is that God can heal. Sometimes we don't think that that it'll happen, but it will. Um, 
that we just need to treat, keep trusting and believing in him that that he will do it and make sure that we pray and stay in that prayer place because that is so important. But I, I love the message on authority. It's, it's so awesome. Um, I read it quite often. So I think Linda wanted to talk a little bit too. Oh, no. Well, I was just going to say, in Hebrews, it, um, it says that we're to hold fast to our confession of faith, which, if we have to hold fast to something, that means somebody's trying to steal it, right? So, weeks went by of laying hands on him, praying, declaring that he was healing, and we saw nothing. <laughs> and this just went on. And you know... I'm watching my husband, who is incredibly strong. Nothing ever gets him down. He's never in pain. You know, he's like my Superman. And so watching him day after day, going to work, working (laughs) one-armed. He was the one-armed bandit. (laughs) And not complaining, but I'm watching him every night. He can't sleep. He can't get comfortable. And I'm trying not to move because I don't want to hit him and make it worse and we're laying hands and he's going up front for healing and he's getting hands laid on him and you know what we had to hold fast to that confession were we expecting a phone call you know obviously God put that on Levin's heart talked to Joel Joel's from South Africa who live I mean he lives here now and he's a healing evangelist he calls, and my first thing is, Rusty's not here. And he said, that doesn't matter. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I honestly, to be really honest, just saw, well, okay, that's great. You're, you're praying for him. <laughs> Thank you. That was it. I didn't feel anything. I didn't even call him to say, hey, Joel just called to pray for you. How you feeling? Because he had had so many prayers, and we didn't see anything. But he never gave up. He kept saying, I know God's going to heal me, even though we did make a, we made an appointment. Because I started feeling like, you got to get the surgery. you got to get the surgery. You can't live like this. And we did make the appointment. It, it never happened, thankfully. And he even said, I'm healed. You can't call and cancel that appointment. I was like, yeah, you know, let's wait a couple days. <laughs> let's give it some time. And he's like, no, God has healed me. Call and cancel that appointment. I am not going in for surgery. So hold fast. Don't give up. Don't think that God is not hearing your prayer. Why did it take three weeks, four weeks, whatever? It seemed like it was a whole lot longer than that. I I don't know. We don't have those answers, but we do know that God is faithful. Mm -hmm. So remain faithful. Remain expectant. And your miracle will show up. That's our power. Heal or power to love. Power to face tomorrow. Power to forgive. I invite you to come up while I'm praying. Father, I ask that you would give each one of us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better. Not just know you in our heads, but experience you. To have contact, personal, first-hand knowledge of you. And that that would grow and grow. And I pray that you would open our eyes the eyes of our hearts, that we would know and perceive and comprehend the hope that you have called us to, the riches of the inheritance, the glorious inheritance that you have for us. 
and that, that we would know and comprehend and begin to access this immeasurable great power you have in toward us who believe, this power that you use, that, that mighty strength that raised Jesus and us, the power that has set Jesus above every rule and power and dominion and authority. I pray that we would begin to comprehend this and that we would access it in our everyday lives and that we begin to see that, that power is good for healing the sick and loving our enemies. It's, it's, let's not put it in a box. Pray that you would remind us, Holy Spirit, of this power that's available in those moments when we feel powerless. I ask that you would seal any, any seed or any truth that from today. You would seal it in our hearts and in our minds that the enemy wouldn't steal it and that we would hold fast to our confession and that we would hold fast to the faith that the power that raised Jesus resides in us and that we have the authority to draw a line in the sand and command the enemy to command sickness to command things to bow. In the name of Jesus, amen.